Hello, hello. Thanks for joining. Just trying to get the room situated. We'll get started in a few minutes. Hopefully everybody's doing okay. Hopefully everybody's doing okay. Hey, hey, everybody. Malcolm, let's get you up on stage, buddy. There you are. Hey, Tomas. Hey, what's going on? Not much, not much. So is it really your first time? Okay. It is. I'm uh, I'm a clubhouse virgin, so to speak. <laughs> All right. That is funny. All right, let's get you. All right, so I'll give you a quick uh, rundown uh, in a minute or so. Let yeah, me, no worries. Uh, let me uh, just get the room situated. We'll get everybody sort of settled in. Um, and then I'll, I'll help you out so that way it makes it easier for you since it is your first time on stage. Um, <laughs> But you'll see two things, and you, I'm sure you probably you already figured out one of them, which is the unmute button. Uh, yep. So you figured that out. Uh, the other one is to mute yourself, but you'll be doing a lot of talking, so you probably won't be <laughs> muted. Uh, and what I probably should have told you is, uh, what do we kind of do here? So look, we typically run a we run a weekly fireside chat. We invite guests, uh, usually leaders from across the industry, yourself included. Uh, hey, Katie, uh, we invite them to sit with us for about an hour and a half or so, and we ask questions. And And this is what I'll call a middle of the week relaxation type of a fireside chat. So it's not really focused on product or solutions or anything yep. like that. It's more about you and your origin story and really getting to know you as a person in this world that we live in and your journey. Uh, obviously, you're going to interlace that with with some real life experience and pra practitioner type experience, which is great uh, because our listeners want to know, you know, how did Malcolm become Malcolm, you know? So <laughs> uh, you can start from wherever you want and go to wherever you want. And then we'll, we'll usually ask uh, questions. We being the moderators. Uh, so Katie's one of our moderators. There'll be a few others that join us up in a little bit. Yeah. Uh, we'll ask you a question for about 30 to maybe 40 minutes or so. And then we'll yeah, open up no to the audience to uh, to pop up on stage, and then they'll ask you questions. So the conversation will go uh, in any direction, to be very transparent. Yeah, so. that's to be honest. I love that. So Good. totally, totally game, and I'm not shy. So, uh, you know, ask me the questions that you probably wouldn't ask other people because it doesn't bother me. <laughs> Sounds awesome. Sounds awesome. So let me just, uh, hey, Hussein, hey, Katie, microphone check for you. Hi, uh, nice to see you. Hi, Malcolm. You know, Malcolm, hey, that's, Katie. That, that's dangerous to put a, <laughs> something like that in front of someone like me. I, now I feel like I have to come up with something really good. I, to be ask. honest, I, uh, <laughs> when, even when I did public events, a lot of them, even at Intel and stuff, even the internal ones where it's a thousand people when you do a business update meeting or stuff like that, I'm like, don't filter the questions. I want somebody to go to the mic. I don't want anybody 
you know, hand-holding, massaging, or any other way manipulating a question somebody has. I'll handle it regardless of what it is. And if I don't have an answer, I'll tell them I don't have an answer. You know, if I have to make something up off of the fly based upon an opinion, I'll do that. And I'll share my logic or data as to why and recognize that I might not actually know. But, you know, so like I said, that doesn't bother me at all. Good stuff. Good stuff. So look, let's... uh... Sorry, Katie, I didn't mean to talk over you. Oh, no, I was just saying, wonderful, great. Looking forward to it. Right. So, look, why don't we, uh, why don't we, start, why don't we get started? So I'm just going to lay a few ground rules down. Hey, Lisa Beth. Hey, Hussein. Uh, we'll, we'll microphone check you in a second. Uh, it's just a few quick ground rules. Uh, again, it's the middle of the week. I don't know about you, but my week has been interesting so far. I'm hopeful to make it through to the to the rest of the week. So let's have fun. Let's have a good let's have a good time this evening. Uh, this is our weekly fireside chat. If it is your first time joining us, we do this every single Wednesday uh, between 8 p.m. Eastern time and 9:30 p.m. Eastern time. I'm just gonna uh, sorry. I'm just gonna mute you real quick, Michael. Getting background noise. Uh, hey, VJ. Uh, we do this between 8 p.m. Eastern time and 9:30 p.m. Eastern time. As I mentioned earlier, we're going to ask our guest this evening, who is Malcolm. We're going to ask him questions for about 30 to 40 minutes or so, and then we'll open up for the audience for you guys to pop up on stage and ask your question. Obviously, you can use the the, the chat option if you want to ask a question and you don't want to jump up on stage or you want to just interact with uh, with the conversation you like what you're hearing. Feel free to use the chat because we will be monitoring the chat. And please feel free to share this. Uh, if it is your first time joining us, there's a little greenhouse on the top left of your screen right next to where it says Fireside Chat. It looks like a little Monopoly house. You can click that. You might pass go and collect $200. Nah, I'm just playing. You won't collect anything, but what you will be able to do is you'll be able to see who our next guests are, and you will be a member of our Fireside Chat. So we uh, invite you to uh, to join us uh, on this journey of, of conversations. Uh, the last, last few things I'll say is uh, our opinions and expressed this evening are our own and do not represent our current or prior employers. I think that applies to a good amount of folks on the stage. Um, so please be respectful of that uh, and mindful of that. And then the last the last point that I'll make is if you are a vendor in the audience and you do want to sell us on your product, we appreciate you being a vendor. We need you guys and gals. Uh, but please don't sell us on your solution today. Let's Let's leave that for a different conversation. Let's try to use this conversation as a really as really as an opportunity to get to know Malcolm uh, a little bit more. If there is a question that you do want to ask uh, uh, that, that does lean towards that direction, you can ask it, feel free. But, you know, I would just say, please don't sell us on any of your solutions today. Different type of conversation, different uh, different football game happening this evening. <laughs> Had to throw that one in. All right, so I'm just going to go around the room, introduce ourselves. Uh, Malcolm, we'll leave you for last. Uh, so I'm Tomas Maldonado. I'm the CISO for the NFL. Katie, over to you. I'm Katie Hanahan. I'm a VCSO and the Vice President of Cybersecurity Strategy for IT Savvy. Hussein. Good evening. Welcome, Malcolm. Hussein Saeed, uh, CISO at RWJ Barnabas Health. Over to you, Lisa. Hi, everyone. I hope you're having a wonderful evening. My name is Lisa Beth Lentini Walker. I am a compliance, ethics, and corporate governance strategist working for Lumen Worldwide Endeavors. Vijay, you're up next. Thank you, Lisa. Good evening, everybody. Vijay Bala here, uh, CISO of the Asset Management Division at Goldman Sachs. Uh, Malcolm, uh, looking forward to a fun night. Tomas, over back to you. 
Uh, actually, we'll pass it over to Anil. Anil, thanks for joining oh, us oh this my. evening. Go ahead, Anil. Hey, thanks, Thomas. Um, Anil Varghese, uh, currently serving as a virtual CISO for firms uh, in the U.S. and one in the U.K. Uh, looking forward to a great conversation with Malcolm this evening. All right. Thanks for that, guys and gals. Thanks for joining us this evening. Malcolm, I muted you, so on the bottom right of your screen, there you go. So, Malcolm, why yep. don't you take a moment to introduce yourself? And while you're doing that, I usually like to ask our guests this question around their origin story. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your origin story? How did you come about in this world? And, you know, you can obviously, as I mentioned earlier, you can start wherever you want and take us however long you want. So take your time. And tell us a little bit more about you, Malcolm. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Tomas. And uh, happy to be here with uh, with all of you. And uh, some of you I know, and some of you I'm uh, just meeting for the first time virtually. So uh, thanks for uh, having me. Uh, so Malcolm Harkins, I'm Chief Security and Trust Officer with an early stage cybersecurity startup um, called Epiphany Systems, but no infomercial on that. Prior to that, I uh, spent uh, 20 months or so um, with another early stage cybersecurity company, um, Cymatic, doing web application security. Uh, prior to that, uh, pretty simple. I was at uh, Silence for four years, uh, working for Stuart McClure as his chief security and trust officer and managing all the internal day-to-day -day stuff that's spending most of my time external facing. And prior to that, my life was simple. I spent 24 years at Intel uh, at the Intel campus that's still two miles down the street from my house in Folsom, California. Um, uh, but, you know, so so uh, the, the, the beginning in and uh, middle and end for Malcolm, uh, let's just see. I grew up a mile and a half from Knott's Berry Farm in Southern California um, in a low to middle uh, income neighborhood with decent amount of gangs all around. Uh, my dad did manual labor. Uh, and, uh, you know, from there, just frankly busted my ass through um, school and and college. I did uh, undergraduate at UC Irvine in economics and then uh, spent a number of years in retail um, in undergraduate. And then when I first got out of undergraduate, managing uh, made department stores Southern California credit operations for their couple million credit card holders. And then my wife and I got married almost 32 years ago um in southern california and we moved to davis and we both went to graduate school she did her phd in developmental psychology and uh, emotion behavior research in early childhood and i did my mba in finance and accounting and the funny thing is i never planned to go in the tech industry never planned to do security never planned to even work for intel i was a business guy through and through finance and as i uh was in graduate school one of the jobs that I had was recruiting companies to recruit the MBA students. And I landed the tech whale of Northern California, Intel, to recruit the MBA students um, from UC Davis. And the day before, you know, we had to fax the resumes over on a Friday for them to show up on a Tuesday for interviews on site, you know, um, going through 10, 15 students. The dean and I are meeting and we're let's say truing up the products on the shelves because the students are the products and you want good product on the shelf because the buyer is the recruiter uh, because you want them to come back and buy from you. They want, you want them to hire your students. And so we did a little cleanup, moved a few lower tiered students out, moved a few good ones in, and there was still an open interview slot. And the Dean made me put my resume in the stack 
Now, I was already in flight with a job offer that I had already had a verbal offer to go be assistant vice president of international finance for Wells Fargo in downtown San Francisco. That was just going to go do that, split commutes with my wife, you know, because she was uh, still working her PhD at Davis. And uh, anyway, so Dean made me do it. I show up for the interviews. Of course, since I recruited them, I got past the first interviews. They wanted me on site a few days later for an all day set of interviews. So I had to delay going to San Francisco to finalize my offer with Wells Fargo because the Dean said, Malcolm, what's your mission? My mission was to stimulate demand for the school. And way of doing that was to get them to want more of the students, including me, even if I turned them down later. So I go do an all day set of interviews with Intel, come home on a Friday night, had pushed out uh, my Wells Fargo thing to the next week. My wife and I had been driving towards the Bay Area. So you don't know Northern California. Davis is like 90 miles from San Francisco. And it's a brutal commute. And, and so we were trying to find places to live and think about um, me working downtown while she was finishing her PhD. We had been doing it for months, couldn't find anything we liked. They were too expensive or they were just dumps. And, uh, and so, you know, uh, Saturday morning comes around and my wife's like, I don't feel like looking for, for houses in Vallejo or Richmond or anything else again. You said Folsom was kind of neat. Let's go there. It's on the other side of Sacramento, 40 miles away. I'm like, okay, fine. So we stroll into Folsom. You know, uh, old Folsom is uh, kind of the old gold rush days and, you know, some developments happening in this big Intel campus. We spend all day in Folsom just bumming around, looking at houses, doing all this stuff. On Sunday morning, we end up back in Folsom doing the same thing. Two o'clock on a Sunday afternoon, I put money down on a house for a city that I had never been in other than four days earlier, for a job that I didn't even have for at Thintel because the economics person in me is like, I can afford this and it's nice. And if I don't get an Intel job, which I didn't necessarily knew that I wanted to yet, we'll, we'll rent it out and we'll just, you know, um, you know, move here sometime later. But it was a good decision because then I could just uh, deploy capital, make some money and, and then go do the, the Wells Fargo thing. And when we were driving home on Sunday, uh, my wife and I continued talking about, boy, it was really nice and Folsom, and boy, I really liked the people I met, and you know, it was exhilarating. Monday, I go to San Francisco, finalize the offer from Wells Fargo, don't have a cell phone at the time. They asked me for an answer, and I said, hey, can you give me a day? I've got to go down and talk with my wife, talk about the relocation package, all that stuff. Um, they're like, fine, tell us on Wednesday, get home Monday night, my wife and I chat about it. Tuesday morning, Intel calls. I accept a job in their strategic procurement group as a quasi-finance and procurement guy. And then called Wells Fargo and said, no, that's how I ended up at Intel. And what I've learned from that, and even the way in which every job I had at Intel, including tripping my way into security, I've managed most, if not all, of my career on a few different things. Luck, timing, and execution. Luck, it happens for you or against you. Um, and if it, if it happens against you, if you're savvy enough, you can flip it around. Timing, you know, the Wayne Gretzky thing, go where the puck is going. And if you get good on timing, you can develop your own luck. 
And then execution. Execution is the only thing I can control as an individual and for the teams that I've got, what we can deliver, um, what capacity um, we can create. And, and then the other things that I've, I've managed, uh, you know, um, my career on is just, again, that kind of sense of purpose and mission, um, which is what got me into security after 9-11. When uh, Andy Grove was still running Intel, frankly, beating the crap out of the CIO and some other corporate officers on availability risk issues. And CIO called me up. And again, I was in a business unit um, doing, uh, you know, business operations and some planning and logistics stuff. And so Malcolm, I need you to run security and business continuity for me. I'm like, why? He's like, uh, I, you know, I was like, I don't know shit about security. It's like, that's fine. I got a bunch of security geeks who don't know shit about the business. They'll teach you and you'll teach them. Literally, that's what got me into security. And then I've never left the space. And then over time at Intel, put my arms around other aspects of risk, product security, um, again, some other business initiatives, corporate emergency management, physical security. And then, like I said, from there, I've just make most of my decisions, frankly, on gut instinct in terms of what I want to do next based upon what creates a sense of passion, purpose or curiosity for me. So if that is a five minute or so of ramble on, on who I am and how I got here, I'll uh, let you guys fire away. No, that's great, Malcolm. And thanks for that. And uh, the more you, you share in the, in the intro, the, the better for us. So uh, I'm sure, I'm sure we've got a lot of questions. So Katie, I'll pass it over to you. Ooh, we got to be first. Thank you. Well, you know, it's, it's a really an interesting moment because you just said something um, that really struck me, you know, passion, purpose and curiosity, you know, being the things that when I look at my peers in the cybersecurity industry, um, we do all seem to share that if we're the long haulers. Um, I'm in about 18 years. It sounds like you have a, a couple of more on me. And, um, you know, with with that, it sounds like you're leading teams as well. Um, you know, you had a lot of vignette things, things about your your background and, and your path into cybersecurity that, you know, demonstrate that very, very well. But just curious in leading teams, I'm kind of at the stage in my career where I'm, I'm really just um, beginning that, you know, executive leadership path. Um, what are the things that you do and say in a day that really help instill that passion, purpose, and curiosity in the people that you work with? And is there ever a time that you've told someone maybe they need to find their passion, purpose, and curiosity in a different um, uh, different uh, profession if they don't have enough for to, to yep. live in cyber, right? So that's, 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 I'm just kind of curious from an executive leadership perspective. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I'm glad you asked that. I, I, I don't read a lot of books for pleasure, but over the years I've, I've loved reading a variety of leadership books. Um, and uh, I, if you've ever read the book, The Leadership Challenge, it's a fantastic book. There's a whole leadership practice in that index that you can have yourself scored against, measured against, and stuff like that. It's really got a good set of things. I used to teach that as a um, multi-day class at Intel um, to emerging uh, leaders um, as I was becoming more senior. But what I learned over the course of time, you know, and there's all these definitions of leaders, right? Some are um, more hierarchical definitions, some are they create vision, some are more authoritative type things. Um, I, I, in the book, The Leadership Challenge, in one of the chapters someplace, there, there was a, um, 
uh, an item on there on leadership that uh, I still use today as I'd say one of the best definitions of leadership I've ever seen. Leadership is the art of motivating others to want to struggle for shared aspirations. Think about it. It's not authoritative. It's not organizational. It's not positional. It is an art, which it is. And and in it's it's motivating people towards a shared aspiration. And the other important part is to struggle, right? And when I get that in the cybersecurity industry, it's a struggle day in and day out. You guys all know that. Not only from the external battlefield that we face, but the internal battlefield of budgets, bureaucracies, and behaviors that um, dilutes, it degrades that spirit to want to fight on the external battlefield at times. I know, I've seen it, I've experienced it. Um, and so I go, with that as my, my job, then you go, how do I do that? Um, I've got um, uh, a, uh, a few trademarks. Um, one that's more oriented in the security space that I have the, the registered trademark for three words, protect to enable. Um, because I determined a long time ago when I was at Intel that that was the core mission of the security team, protect to enable people, data, and business. If there's protection for protection's sake, we were wasting time, wasting money. Um, and, and as soon as we got our, our orientation of that protect to enable, we also reduced the friction with the business. Um, you know, you can't eliminate it, but we reduced it a, a good bit. Now, the other uh, trademark that I have is for a future book that I'll write. There's a, a leadership talk I've given a handful of times um, it's deeply personal to me because it, I, 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 you'll hear from this dialogue. I'm a, what you see is what you get. I make myself extremely vulnerable. I share a lot of stuff. Um, and it's, it's my journey in leadership and, and, and not only as a leader, but as an employee, what would motivate me to want to struggle for something, right? What would cause me to be in my ideal state, um, to execute and to perform and to never give up and never give in. Um, and we all fall out of sync on it occasionally, but the six words that I have that I've got a leadership framework around are, I believe, I belong, I matter. I've come to the conclusion for myself and I've come to the conclusion with the thousands of people that I've managed over the years that when I've found a performance issue, including in myself, there's something wrong with the I believe, I belong, I matter. And I, and, I, and I think that if an individual can routinely say to themselves, and some people need to say it daily, some it's weekly, some it's every once in a while, I believe in the mission, I believe in the management, I believe in myself, and I believe in my peers. I belong because the culture, the organization, the environment, frankly, gives a shit about me. And the work I do and the work the organization does matters. The rest of it is easier. If you hire somebody smart and you can cultivate a culture that, that self-corrects, identifies where people are out of sync with that, you'll you'll be in that right executive leadership mindset and you'll have 
more people wanting to work for you directly and indirectly, and you'll never be without a wreck that you can't already have 10 people waiting to join you before you even open it. I've never had a recruiting problem at Intel, at Silence to today. I, I, I mean, and it's because I, I've actively worked to create that culture. And then frankly, there's been times we all have personal challenges outside of um, work or sometimes even inside of work um, where I've gotten disjointed with that. I've got disillusioned, I've gotten frustrated and I've had my own team members that work, my staff members or individual contributors recognize there's something off with me. Pull me aside, check on how I'm doing. You know, in that which, you know, leadership can be lonely. But if you make yourself vulnerable, you make yourself open and you do that, then your own organization will feed your sense of belief, belonging and, and mattering as well. Well, thank you for that. Yeah, and I look forward to that. Did you say you're writing that book currently or you're, you're uh, oh boy, you know, it's on the it's, list. I've, <laughs> it's on the <laughs> list. Um, I have an outline for it. I've got stories. It's uh, it's ended up more as a as a keynote or a leadership talk where I've come into some organizations to deliver it. And, you know, again, I'll just, uh, you know, if anybody's interested, I'll, I'd be happy to share it with them. And if they have a team that wants me to talk with them about it, happy to do so. Um, to be honest, that, you know, I just haven't dedicated the time because having written a couple books um, in the security space, they're they're painful yet cathartic and both the books that i've published have taken me a year ish to get done and it's a lot of work and then you know frankly just you know being in startups i haven't had the time um other than i've collected more stories and more evidence <laughs> that um i think my my leadership framework is reasonably accurate i can appreciate that having spent a little time at startups myself so yeah well thank you for that <laughs> and uh, i'll just um pass the mic over to hussein next hussein are you in a place you can ask a question yes indeed thank you katie good evening malcolm welcome to the fireside chat uh you lead a very accomplished career you know, from a brick and mortar Intel to jumping over to startups. Can you describe that transition a bit? It's a very big culture shift for me, <laughs> what I said. So I'd like to hear a bit about that. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. Um, go back to when I left Intel. I mean, I grew up in a big company that became bigger, right? And I had a technical assistant. I had an admin. I had a lawyer, I had an HR person, I had a finance person, I had a procurement person, plus I had all my staff. I mean, I had the accoutrement of, you know, a lot of support around me, right? Um, and I had handlers, right? If I, if I went to an event like this, I'd have two PR people on it and, you know, somebody listening and, you know, making sure I didn't go astray or when I went astray, they'd get worried and, and try and make sure that I didn't, you know, dig a deeper hole, um, you know, that to silence where I landed and I was an individual contributor, uh, you know, charged with making sure silence was secure. Um, I was employee 150. Um, and I, to be honest, it did not, it, it was no experience change for me. I was reasonably self-sufficient despite the handlers I had around me because I would always schedule my own meetings and do some of this stuff unless I got super busy or, 
you know, it was a complicated thing. I, you know, still by and large did my own expense reports, booked some of my own travel, my admin would help with it. So that type of leaving the, that assistance around me wasn't that big of a deal. Going to a smaller company, frankly, wasn't that big of a deal. And, and even, you know, a couple months later, after I joined Stu, um, Stuart McClure, um, he was a little bit worried, big company guy for life, and then going doing a startup thing. He worried that, that uh, the, there would be that culture shock, and I would perhaps not survive it, because a lot of people don't. Um, and when, you know, it, 60, 90 days in, I'm down in Irvine, and we're having a chat and just doing kind of a quarterly update on a few things. He's like, hey, you know, I got I to gotta tell you, you're, you're doing better than I thought. And I'm like, what the hell does that mean? He's like, well, I thought you'd struggle with the startup and this and that. And, and, you know, it was funny because in the dialogue that we had, I told him, I'm like, look, every job I had at Intel was a startup job. It was just in the context of a big company. Um, my first job it, I, it was a new position that he had created to negotiate the CAD computing contracts for the design environment. When I transitioned out of procurement more into dedicated financial, I was doing, you know, the first total cost of ownership stuff. Hell, I helped fix Gartner's and create Gartner's TCO model from 30 plus years ago for total cost of ownership for PC client computing. Um, and then every role I had since then were always, I went to an, uh, the worst job possible that nobody wanted to go fix it, or it was brand new and I was creating it, or it, you know, it was a brand new role and I was jumping into it. And even when I landed running security and business continuity, there was a small InfoSec team, there's an InfoSec director, no offense to them, but they were policy wonks that um, had a small investigations team and, and did some control work. There was none of the other aspects of anything that, you know, close to what people have today. So it was all construction. Um, Sarbanes-Oxley happened. I went and did that. The privacy stuff went and did that. I, you know, uh, e-discovery efforts because of Intel's antitrust suit with AMD went and built that. And, and I just glued all that stuff into my security role. So for me, it wasn't that much different. Then I'll go back to what I told Katie. I believed in the mission. I believed in the management. I believed in myself, felt like I belonged and what I was doing mattered. Then it's just, you know, if that's how I've really helped that solidify in me. I always realized that if those things were in place, I would, that's what mattered. And, and the rest of it was just, how much I had to do on my own versus how much I was working through others to do. Thank you. Great insights. Over to you, Lisa. Hi, Malcolm. I've really enjoyed the um, wisdom that you've imparted so far. Um, so I wanted to ask you a question. Sure. As <laughs> we are getting towards graduation time. So as you think about, um, advice that could help people, what's the best advice that you would give to students that are making their way out into the working world or thinking about what to do with the rest of their lives? You know, it's funny that you asked that question. So I actually teach occasionally college courses. Um, and uh, I actually probably a couple times a year. And um, back 
eight weeks ago. Uh, I don't know if you guys know uh, Laz. He's a co-founder of uh, Blue Lava, former CISO for Sears. Um, uh, anyways, so I was, I was uh, do, teaching a class um, for him. And, uh, you know, towards the end of it, um, yeah, I knew that question was going to come up. And I had a couple slides, which I just pulled up. So I'll read them. So that way it, it, I, I'm not going off of memory and screwing it up. So I, it's titled careers, where to start, how do you navigate your path? And I told them almost what I told you guys. I didn't plan to work for Intel. I didn't plan to do risk and security. I didn't plan to leave Intel. It just all happened. And again, the three lessons that I learned over the years that I shared with them is hard work beats talent that doesn't work so hard. So again, think about that. Hard work beats talent that doesn't work so hard. Absolutely true. I'm not the most talented person. I don't, wasn't the best finance person. I'm certainly not a technologist. I'm certainly not you know, a, a built security person, but I hustle more than, than many people. Um, speak in such a way that others want to listen to you. Listen in such a way that others want to speak to you. Lesson to influence, be influenced, and again, create that sense of mission and purpose and belief and belonging and stuff. And then my luck, timing, and execution. And then the last thing I told with them is like, look, the perfect day, if you can have this as often as possible, go to bed with a dream, wake up with a purpose. You do those things, you'll have a good career. Some people know I want to be that. I never knew what I wanted to be. I still don't. And that's okay. I figured it out along the way. I love it, especially as someone who continues to find uh, that I'm not, I'm still not quite sure what I'm going to be when I grow up, but I, I the journey is fantastic. So yes. thank, <laughs> thank you for sharing all of that. And I think it's great advice that I will, you know, pass along to, um, to my children and to uh, the many, many young people who are, uh, well, people just in general who are graduating with hopes and dreams. So if, if you want, I'll send you the, the couple slides that has what I just rambled off. I would love that. Um, thank you so much. BJ, I'm going to pass it along to you. Thank you, Lisa. Malcolm, fascinating journey. And thank you for a lot of your insights. We've had a lot of CISOs obviously join, uh, join us on our fireside chats and a few uh, senior folks also from cybersecurity firms, you're fairly unique as a, <laughs> you know, the CISO, a multi-time CISO in cybersecurity companies. How does that look like? Could you share us like uh, how your job typically varies from the traditional CISO role? Yeah, to be honest, there's, and I know a bunch of uh, CISOs and stuff in other cybersecurity companies, uh, a wide variety of them, big and small, and people who've tried to do a journey like me and go from the big role into um, smaller startups and stuff. There's, I'll be blunt, there's some of them that are complete faux roles. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's uh, um, smoke and mirrors. They don't do anything internal for security. It's a pure marketing role. And that's a good chunk of them in security companies. Um, mine, I have the marketing role. I have the business development. I have all that stuff to support the company's growth and mission. But 
I mean, hell, I was working on SOC on, on our InfoSec policy for Epiphany um, because we were getting a SOC 2 underway. And, you know, so literally I was cleaning up the 35 policies and procedures a couple hours ago. And I scheduled tomorrow update meetings with the IT director, the DevOps director, uh, the CTO. I'm like, you're busy. Don't worry about it. I'll work with these guys and we'll, you know, um, adjust you know, technically, whether or not I shaped it to what we're doing, or we have to do some cleanup, right? And then we'll do our gap analysis. And then we've got a meeting in a couple of weeks to figure out what resources we need so that we can get it all going. So there's, you know, I, I still do that stuff. I'm not a fingers on keyboard guy, never have been. Um, but, you know, so if it's somebody that's actually really running it and overseeing it you you'll know because you ask them questions so if i was on your guys' side and i was a you know a buyer which i still am i'm i'm buying technologies uh you know and, and solutions and stuff for for epiphany just like it did at silence um and stuff and you'll have the CISO for that vendor come talk to you ask them questions ask them you know, um, what's their biggest risk? How are they managing these things? And if they come across flat-footed, they're a marketing CISO, they're not actually running anything or overseeing it, right? Um, so like I said, it's, it's for me, I still keep my fingers on it, even though I'm not the fingers on keyboard guy and I'm overseeing all those risk issues and the decisions. He, heck, even at silence, you get to a certain size, everybody has incidents. Who was the incident commander for things that affected silence? I was. Because we had things that went bump every once in a while. We had mistakes that occurred. We had employees in Mexico City during an earthquake. And guess who was coordinating, making sure they were okay? Me. Um, so, like I said, I, I just, I have a tendency to not want to let that But that's also because I don't want to just be... Um, I, I want to stay true to it. And frankly, I'll be really blunt with you guys. I don't trust security companies. Secu you know, the security industry profits from the insecurity of computing. So at a macroeconomic level, most of the industry doesn't really care about solving the problems. Now, I think that started to shift the past several years with startups and, and some of the stuff like that. But I, I've bought from enough security companies I've seen the internal actions of security companies and there's a lot of security companies out there that the cobbler somewhat no shoes. They'll sell you a security solution, but they're not doing very good internal security. Um, so, you know, if, if you're talking to the equivalent of me with a security company, put them through their paces and hold them accountable. Love it. Thank you for that. And and the bluntness as well. Appreciate it. I know. Over to you. Thanks, VJ. Uh, Malcolm, appreciate you carving out the time. Uh, I think we met years and years ago during your Intel days, and yep. also I worked I worked with Stu uh, back in his early days in Um One thing, you know, you're considered one of the thought leaders in our space. Nowadays, I'm assuming you get pinged left and right uh, to engage on the board level or advisory standpoint. Uh, has your approach or methodology changed in how you look at companies that you lend your name to? 
Um, yeah. So, you know, and again, I, I do board and advisor work um, for um, uh, several different uh, organizations, basically all in the security space in one way, shape or form. I'm on the board of directors, so meaning I have fiduciary accountability as a board of directors. Um, the advisory stuff you don't, it, it's, it's, you know, you're just providing advice and you might get stock or, you know, they write you a check every once in a while. Um, for the board roles, I'm on two boards. Um, one is the Cyber Risk Alliance. It's the parent company to InfoSec World, SC Media, uh, Enterprise Security Weekly, Collaboration Forums. It's a media and events business that that you know uh services the security industry i'm the only practitioner on the board um the rest of the folks are media and event folks um but uh and i got connected to that from you know knowing the uh the founder of avanta you guys might all remember the CISO for CISO stuff and um and bob deflis um uh, and I got to know each other way back in my Intel days when they were just doing CIO events before they started doing the CISO ones. And uh, when the Cyber Risk Alliance was getting formed and they were getting private equity and then hiring uh, Doug Manoni, who's the CEO, fantastic leader um, from uh, Sourcefire Media, they asked me to join the board. I said yes, because I liked the people and I liked what they were uh, attempting to do. Um, and, you know, um, provide better, um, business intelligence to the security community, um, better collaboration, and then also better, you know, reach for the vendors since I've sat on the vendor side now for a long time. So, um, that's kind of a unique thing to, to do. I also sit on the board of directors for TrustMap, um, they're in the security performance management space, so automating the security maturity assessments and stuff like that. And then I do advisory work for a wide variety of companies, Cyvatar, SafeBridge, uh, Kaconic, uh, Zero Networks, a um, couple other ones. And then I, I'm also uh, uh, an advisor to a large um, uh business that, uh, you know, just uh, got bought and separated from a, a large telecommunications um, company and uh, is now owned by private equity um, because they wanted some external advisors to help guide their security and data protection um, efforts. So, you know, I meet with them periodically and, and the team and attending their face-to-face -face in a few weeks. Um, I, you know, so for me, it almost, it, it goes back to the same thing. If I, if I trust them, if I like what they're trying to do and the impact it can have, and I think I can add value, and, and certainly if it's a startup, you know, the, the technology has to work or it has to have the promise of working. And I've done some advisory work for some startups that will frankly never go anywhere. Great technology, great concept, but they just couldn't get their go-to-market going and and you know the funding and stuff like that but i'll still go do it because of the you know the potential you know considering it fed my curiosity and fed my sense of purpose no that's awesome i appreciate you sharing that seems those those themes still hold true even back to when you got into the game and started working in that space so appreciate those insights back to you tomas Hey Malcolm, uh, you know, 
I want to follow up on what Anil asked, right? Uh, clearly, a lot of activity there. Uh, yep. And you know, some of us have been talking about the whole uptick in a lot of these board events, networking events, vendor meetups. How do you juggle all of these? <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, to be honest, sometimes it can be a challenge. Sometimes it's not that hard. I, I, um, I get energy from interacting with people, which is why even doing this is fun for me. Literally, it'll be like when when I get done, my wife's gonna go, "You gotta have a couple glasses of wine because it's like you had two shots of espresso." Um, so I I feed off of um, interacting with people and uh, learning and sharing and stuff like that. So I, I, it's just who I am. It's why even you go go back to my Intel days when I took that security team, it was a couple dozen people as it was growing into hundreds. And then a lot of people don't know this. There was a period of time that I also was general manager for the enterprise capabilities at Intel while I was CISO. So all the finance apps, HR apps, all the business applications that Intel reported to me, plus the strategic procurement group that I started at reported to me. So I have like, you know, 900 people directly underneath me and then span out further. And when some of that stuff was occurring, my, my, the size of my organizations were growing, you know, one of uh, my managers, one of the corporate VPs was like, Malcolm, you got to stop doing that stuff. And I'm like, doing what stuff? He's like, talking to everybody. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, you won't be able to scale. And I'm like, yeah, maybe. He's like, because... I mean, literally, I, I could care less if it was the janitor who dropped me an email and said they wanted to talk. I'd find time. Um, and I still do that. It's because I, it's who I am. It becomes a scaling challenge at times when there's too many things happening at once. But it's almost the same thing for me. I have a hard time saying no. And if I can fit it in, I try and fit it in. There, There's a point at which... You get fragmented, though, um, like when you get you know too many advisory things, too many networking things, and you're not be able to execute on your day job. Now, when I was at Intel, I was limited in the capacity to do some of those external things, even though I did a number of them, because of the span and the size and and just the weight of Intel in the marketplace and all the things I had. Soon as I went to silence and I went to smaller companies, guess what? I didn't have hundreds of people I was managing with tens of millions of dollars of budgets with, you know, a gazillion other things to go do. So guess what? I had a ton of capacity to, that I wasn't using in a massive organization to, you know, go teach recent college grads, the Intel culture, go teach a leadership class go, you know, div do a business update meeting, attend the ethics and compliance service. Like, I mean, all, I mean, you guys know, and if you're in bigger companies, all of those committees and management meetings and all that stuff, in many ways they're useful, but in many ways they're time vampires. Um, and I got rid of all my time vampires when I left a big company. And so it, it freed me up to dabble in a heck of a lot more ways. And now I just, you know, honestly, it's, if um, I try and keep to a certain number, because I still find that if I get more than, 
you know, eight, nine, 10 advisory or board stuff, it becomes too big. But what happens with startups, they either die off and, and they slowly start, you know, um, not getting any momentum, in which case your time to help them starts to minimizing or they get bought. And when they get bought, your, your time with them also starts dissipating and, and changing. In which case, then I go back to when when it feels right, the right people, right time, right place, I'll tuck another one in. So it's, it's you know, I try and keep that, you know, six, seven, very active, but maybe eight to 10 in total. Um, and, and that seems to have worked for me um, since I left Intel. Love it. And I'm going to borrow that time vampires race too <laughs> i to trust me eliminate time vampires they, they, they suck the life out of you true that hey tomas i uh, i realize it's 8 44 do you want to do a quick room reset and uh, maybe bring the folks up well i certainly there vj i was about to but, uh, nice. You had one. You had one other pressing question, so I wanted to make sure you got that in. But I do appreciate that. Uh, look, it is. <laughs> All right, sounds good. Look, uh, if you do have any questions, if there's anybody in the audience uh, that wants to sort of chime in, join the conversation, ask a question, feel free to raise your hand, and we will bring you up on stage. It is about 8:45 p.m. Eastern time, and this is our weekly fireside chat. Uh, we do this every single Wednesday. We bring in a guest uh, this evening. We're joined by Malcolm Harkins, uh, who's joined us. If you just joined us, you've missed a good conversation so far. I'm not going to recap it because we actually have it recorded. So you can go back and listen to it afterwards. Uh, but if you have been here for the get go and you want to pop up on stage and ask a question, feel free to raise your hand and we'll bring you up. So I do see Mr. Pan, Peter Pan has joined us. So Peter, anything you want to ask uh, Malcolm? Thank you, Thomas. Thank you, Markham, for sharing this wonderful experience. Uh, I'm, the, I'm the founder of Deutonomy. Uh, so I think my question is, I have been in a couple of uh, cybersecurity conferences where uh, lots of, uh, lots of uh, companies are rating them. The number one risk for them is really uh, the in, inability to hire uh, quality uh, cybersecurity professionals. And uh, on the other hand, uh, I do hear like lots of junior people, they, they, they had, have a hard time to find a cybersecurity job. Uh, so my question to you is that uh, as a CISO of multiple companies, do you see the, uh, the risk of, uh, of the, the, the hiring security professionals? And, uh, and uh, if you agree, and, uh, and what's the gap there? How do, we, how do we solve these problems? Yeah, good question, good question. So. Um, again, put on my economics hat and um, uh, look at this from an economics perspective. If you go back to my statement of don't trust the security industry because it profits from the insecurity of computing, and you look at the inefficiency and ineffectiveness of a lot of what we're doing, that then drives, let's buy more, let's get more alerts, let's do more, 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 more instead of better. We haven't, you know, again, I grew up in a manufacturing company. We got to get yield, right? Yield in a manufacturing means lower product cost, higher output, right? You know, if you look at the companies that I have gone to since I left Intel and the companies I advise, I'm going after people who are 
who are trying to change not only the risk dynamics, but the economic dynamics of the industry um, and lowering the total cost of controls. And part of the total cost of controls is the fact that we have created our own labor shortage because of our own failings for how we manage risk. So we need more bodies because we've done a crappy job of, of mitigating risk up front um, is a strong personal belief I have. Now, how do you solve that? Um, you, um, you have to automate more to lower costs because more manual efforts is higher cost. And we have to constantly, I have an, a bias towards prevention. I know we can't eliminate risk, but I have a strong bias toward prevention because prevention is the only true form of minimizing vulnerability and the potential for harm. Detection and response are damage minimization controls. So when you're detecting and responding, bad things are already occurring. And so the macro things that you should measure there are time to detect and time to contain. So if you have a philosophical view, and I've written this in my books, my nine box of controls, that you you constantly shift to automation to lower cost and you constantly um, try and reduce risk by preventing it proactively and then shrinking things and having design goals around it, believe it or not, you end up with not as much of a labor issue. I, I mean, I was able to build from scratch when I was at Silence, you know, until I left when we were almost a thousand people. You know, I had a handful of security folks that included the compliance team. And we got a lot of stuff done because we instrumented with a level of automation and and a focus on proactive you know, prevention as much as possible. And believe it or not, when you do that, you know, the detection and response stuff, um, yeah, it happens. And yeah, you're gonna have to deal with it and you're gonna have to instrument more and more and more, but it becomes more easily manageable because I focused on it like I would a finance person. How do I get yield out of this stuff? Now, having said that, even if we did all that stuff and we all did all those things, we'd still have a labor shortage because then we'd have the shortage on the upfront design development and architecture pre-implementation of technology that if that was done better, we'd be also preventing a hell of a lot more issues. Um, but I'd rather have the labor shortage at that security development lifecycle privacy by design side of things um, than where we have it today, which is all in the back end in the more tactical IT operations of it um, that we're all living in. So I'm, you know, now having said all that, you go, okay, that's, a, you know, like solving world hunger, but you can, you can do it within the, the, your sphere in your organizations, but more broadly in the industry, I, I look at talent like, you know, uh, you know, almost anything, it's a build versus buy. Um, I can either buy the talent and compete with everybody else for the high cost um, people, or going back to what I said to Katie earlier, I can create a cultivate a culture of believe, belong, and matter. Go get people that are hungry, humble, and smart and groom them at a lower total cost a higher sense of purpose, and guess what? They'll be sticky with me because I'm giving them career lift. And then I constantly backfill at the beginning of it with more junior people that don't have the the pedigree or skill set yet. And I have that strong belief because when I started at Intel in 1992, Intel was hiring a thousand people a month. And guess what? 
90% of them are recent college grads, never had a job before. It grew the talent because it knew economically that was the only way to do it and um, the most cost-effective way to do it. Thanks, Thank Peter. You. Thanks. Thank for Thanks, Peter. Thanks for popping up on stage and asking your question. Uh, Ryan, what's going on, Ryan? Over to you. Anything you want to ask, Mom? Hi, Malcolm. Nice to meet you. My name is Ryan Rosado. Um, Got to say that when you mentioned the leadership challenge, um, I don't know if you saw the chat, but I uh, I had actually just been talking about that one last week. So just super oh, happy cool. to hear about that. Um, was curious what edition you read, um, only because I know they, they are really good at updating it. But my real question is, um, with you having started your career really in Intel, um, I started actually in cyber intelligence as well. Um, I'm curious since, you know, in, in where you are in your career, how do you specifically think that starting in Intel or, or, or having such a, a, having Intel be such a deep or, or um, substantial part of your foundation, how do you feel like that maybe if, if that changes you as a CISO or um, adds to your, to your role, just curious, you know, um, I've been doing this for, for about 10 years. Um, so just curious maybe what, what additional insights you Yeah, yeah. Um, and I just went and looked at the bookshelf outside my office, and it was the fourth edition of the Leadership Challenge Ooh. that I had uh, um, grew up around and taught for a number of years. Um, and I think they're, what, on their seventh edition now or something like that? I can't remember. Um, but um, so, uh, and, and on Intel, yeah, it's, you know, Intel was so culture strong when I landed there and Andy Grove was running the company. And there was just this relentless pursuit of Moore's Law about always, you know, um, doing better um, and stuff. And, and, and again, I, it, it just, it was a good home for me to grow up in uh, as a professional because of just the, the directness. Intel could be harsh back in the day, um, which I still can be, even though I've softened a bit, but just plain blunt talk. What's the problem? Who owns it? And what the hell are we going to do about it? And when's it going to get done? Right. Or, What's the big idea that seems impossible, but man, if we could do it, it'd be cool. And you go start, you know, figuring it out. So it, it for me, it, um, it was a perfect spot to be in. I'll be blunt. I probably would have gotten fired in too many other organizations because my mouth goes before my brain engages. And I'm not a shy individual. In 1995, three and some years into Intel, I was asked to give a strategic review to Intel's executive staff. Andy Grove starts beating me with questions on the second slide. I walk up to this U-shaped table in the boardroom, you know, Gordon Moore's there. I mean, all the legends of Intel who helped create the company. And I said, can you shut up for a minute and let me build a base of data? And then you can come at me with questions. And then I went back to the old school foil machine that was the plastic overlays with the overhead. You could heard a pin drop in that room. Um, I 
would have gotten fired any other place um, because I, I just like, look, you hired me to get stuff done. If you're in your way, you're in my way, I'm going to give you an opportunity to move over or I'm going to run over you. Um, and I still, you know, operate that way today, other than I'm probably a little bit mellower, but Intel was that way. And it was, it was a perfect environment for me to grow up in. And, you know, um, and I still love it, uh, even though I'm not there and, and even though it's changed and mellowed and, you know, um, while it's doing good, it's, it certainly doesn't have the, uh, the, um, impact that it did, um, at times and, and lost its, you know, uh, way in some some ways but glad gelsinger's back who grew up at intel to run it and and you know get that stuff uh going again and and innovating um so like i said it's it, it, it definitely you know um was a spot like how i ended up there i felt a sense of belief belonging and what the company was doing what i could do to help the company regardless of the role mattered Thank you. Appreciate it. That was really uh, interesting. Thanks. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for popping up on stage. Uh, Philemon, good to see you, my friend. Well, good to hear you because I can't <laughs> see you, but, but uh, thanks, for, thanks for joining us, uh, Philemon. Go ahead. And I, I know it's yeah. late for you, right? Or early? Where, where are you at this? In the uh, 11 a.m. Sydney, Australia. So, yeah, um, uh, privileged to be here. Uh, thank you, Malcolm. Really liked the practical insights from your leadership journey. Uh, you raised an important point relating to uh, cyber leaders or CISOs that don't have any, you know, technical bone. You know, you said smoke and mirrors, uh, which obviously is, um, you know, a big concern in the industry. My experience dealing with CISOs, I think, on the, on the other hand, I see a lot of CISOs who have 10 to 20 years experience in cybersecurity, very strong technically, but also failing to transition into that executive space. Yep. Uh, they struggle to detach themselves from, you know, the technical decision making and stuff. So where do we find the balance? And I also see some unhealthy uh, tension within the industry where, you know, there's a stereotype against, you know, CISOs that don't come from technical backgrounds. And how, how do we, you know, how do we solve this? Yeah, so um, I, uh, I, I have frameworks for everything. So, uh, again, dating back to my Intel days and, and given my background and pedigree, there's, there's um, uh, you know, kind of three, three dimensions of, um, I think, looking at what is required to be that executive chief information security officer, chief security officer, chief trust officer, heck, chief privacy officer. Um, and I glue them all together because I think they're interrelated. Um, I, I, you know, you, for those of you that are old enough, you might remember there was a design company, IDEO, back 70s, 80s and stuff. They, uh, um, I think, helped create the original Xerox machine. They were spin out of something like that. Anyways, they used to talk about the ideal technologist. And I grew up around this at Intel because it was a highly technical company. And it was, they were said the ideal technologist was T-shaped. And the top of the T was their breadth of, of business acumen. And the pillar of the T was the depth of technical acumen. Again, go back to my Intel days. I'm in the job five-ish years. And other than that, 
every other job I had at Intel, I was changing roles every 12 to 18 months because there'd be a problem. I'd go start solving it or somebody go grab me and put me in a, a role that nobody else wanted or there was some new thing. I was just, you know, plug and play. So I, I was moving around a ton until I landed in security. I'm five years in, other than I'm continuing to grow into my stuff. CIO, John Johnson, um, uh, loved working for him. Uh, he uh, sat me down and he was worried about my development and he, uh, that I would get bored in security. And this is 2007-ish, um, 2008. And, and so he's wanting to talk about other things. And I was like, JJ, you don't understand. I have to have all your knowledge. Um, I have to have all this risk security controls compliance acumen. And I have, I have to have enough business acumen. And so I went to a whiteboard and I drew the T and he's like, yeah, yeah, ideal technologist. And he goes, I'm that, I'm the CIO. And you know, I'm like, yeah, I get it. He's like, but I have to be Z shaped. And I drew a Z and I've actually written about this in my book. I was like, I have to have the breadth of business acumen. I have to have the breadth of technical acumen, not the depth, the breadth of technical acumen. And then the hash that creates the Z is the risk security controls and compliance breadth and depth. I said, now surrounding all of that also has to be a level of personal integrity, objectivity, not happening on my damn watch. You know, all, all those things that make me and my organization above reproach and in some cases, unbuildable, uh, unbendable and unbreakable under cer cer certain circumstances, regardless of who's telling me to whitewash risk, which does occur. You guys probably have all experienced it. And that's actually a talk that I'm leading at RSA um, in a few weeks on, on integrity um, for the role. So for me, you have to, again, it's a growth thing. If I, I didn't have the technical depth, I had to grow my technical depth. And then because I wasn't a technologist, I had to surround myself organizationally with people that I could trust that would keep me from making stupid technical decisions because I wasn't a technologist. And so there's ways in which you can mitigate that when you look at that Z shape that I described and you go, not only for that is for the individual, but structurally, I, my Intel days, anybody who's worked for me, I always try and grow them to be these Z shaped individuals with the right values and the right, you know, ethical and integrity issues. I want to grow their business acumen. I want to grow their technical acumen. And I want to grow that risk security controls compliance depth. And so to me, that's, it's, you, you have to grow it. It's just not innate. Um, the thing that, that's innate is, does the individual have the desire to grow that way? And at some point, we all peter out, right? You, you hit a plateau. And, you know, either you don't want to transition past it or you just can't just like uh, I work out every day, but I will likely never do an Ironman. I, I don't think physically I have that capacity in me, but I could. I just don't want to spend the multiple years to go develop it and find out. Right. Awesome. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks, Philemon. Thanks for uh, jumping up on stage and asking your question. And Malcolm, I'm sure you could do an Ironman. Come on, you, you've been you've been <laughs> home for for two years in the pandemic. You've been working out. I, you know, Come it's on, it's funny. Know. My my oldest son, who's an adrenaline junkie um, and lives in Colorado, texted me this morning to see if I wanted to uh, 
do a road biking thing in Northern California if he comes home sometime late this summer, uh, early fall. And I'm like, okay, where, when, and how long? And he's like, I don't know, 75 to 100 miles. And I'm like, uh, you know, and, and I work out every day. Um, I'm up at four at the gym at 4.30 and I've done that for decades. Um, and I'm like, okay, well, I need more specificity because I know I could go get on a bike and do five to seven miles no sweat up and down a few things i could do a 25 mile bike like right now flat 75 to 100 mile bike yeah you know that'll take some uh that would take some training and conditioning so um yeah i i you know and so i left the door open i was like but until i know more and and know whether or not i can afford the time to go get myself conditioned or if you go hey 75 to 100 mile bike but we're going to do 25 miles a day through the Napa Valley and we're going to go have, you know, a couple hours of biking and then go have nice lunch and drink wine and go to dinner. Yeah. I could do that for three days and do, you know, 75 miles in three days, but 75 miles in one shot. Yeah. I don't, my, I, I don't want to be that sore. Um, uh, you know, um, doing it straight out of the gate with no conditioning. I hear that, man. I hear that. That is uh, not something that I have on my list of aspirational goals. <laughs> um, Katie, I know you had another question or two. Why don't you uh, go ahead? And if there's anybody in the audience that wants to jump up on stage, feel free to raise your hand and ask a question. If you don't want to raise your hand and ask a question, you can uh, pop it in the, the Fireside Room chat and we will ask the question for you. But go ahead, Katie. Thank you. Uh, yeah, Malcolm, really enjoying this conversation this evening. Um, you know, I, I, it might be a, a controversial question. I hope not. Oh, go for it. <laughs> oh, I mean, you said you were open. So very, very early on, you said, and I thought it was interesting, between <laughs> MBA, finance, accounting, and working your way through college, that you lived a mile and a half away from Knott's Berry Farm. Yep. But what I would love to know is when you were a little, you know, seven-year-old kid showing up to Knott's Berry Farm, where did you go first? Yeah, great question. You know, so, um, <laughs> again, we were a mile and a half away. My dad worked nights and weekends uh, and, and, uh, and stuff. So afternoons, my brother and I, we get home from school, um, we do our homework. And there was a couple nights a week where, and again, it was the old tickets. For any of you that are old enough, you, you, a, a Disneyland had the A tickets, E tickets, whatever. Knott's Berry Farm had a similar thing. And there was no gate around Knott's Berry Farm at that time. We would walk up there after homework and do an early dinner. And we would walk past Walter Knott was still alive. He lived on a mobile home at the edge of the parking lot on the park. 90 something he'd sit there we'd say hello to him chat with him for a minute or two because he saw us a couple days a week and then my first ride that i always wanted to go to was the log ride well yeah that makes a lot of sense uh i've heard a lot of great stories i've actually never been to knott's berry farm but um you you mentioned that so early on i thought it must have left an impression and um you you kind of answered my follow-up question you know the reason i wanted to you know kind of get into the headspace of you know your uh you know very beginning origin story because you said several things that stood out to me uh through the conversation hard work beats talent that doesn't work as hard i think is what you said i don't want to yep. say this incorrectly because i know you're you're uh you've yeah. trademarked some of these things so i don't want to misspeak <laughs> no no that, that one i haven't but yeah hard okay work beats talent that doesn't work so hard there's another one that i've got 
if you actually were able to see my office, you'd see all the, you'd think I was this weird idiot because I've got post-it notes literally several feet up um, uh, in front of my computer with all these things that have come out of my mouth or sayings that I've heard that I like. Um, one of them is the only place where sex success comes before work is the dictionary. I love that one. Also something you learned in the in the very early origin of your, <laughs> in your after Knott's Berry Farm, it sounds like you'd sit yes. down and read the dictionary. I mean, who doesn't do that? When they're seven? <laughs> but you know, it's, it sounds like when I mean, you mentioned your father was working, you know, several jobs, it was, it's very clear that you have, you know, a work ethic. And um, I just, I find it interesting that you've also then you went into a, you know, into recruiting and being able to identify not just intelligent um, and passionate people with purpose and curiosity, but then also seems like you've also been able to, to hone in on that work ethic piece as well. So um, it was more of a comment than anything. I just kept seeing that kind of uh, almost not as deliberately being brought up throughout the conversation and just wanted to say, you know, I think that's really interesting. And, you know, are there ways when you're you're uh, recruiting or interviewing or, or looking at the startups where you're wanting to work with those founders, is how much of, of that hard work piece is, you know, is that maybe, is that fourth or is that first, second yeah, or third in, the, the, in that? Yeah, thank you. It's a good question. Um, you know, I, I think most founders have a strong work ethic or believe they do, otherwise they wouldn't, you know, go take the leap to go um, try and found something. But there's, if you go to the Maslow hierarchy, right, you know, there, you, your, your hierarchy of needs, right? I, I mean, I grew up in, like I said, a, a low-income neighborhood with gangs around, um, fights, shootings. Elementary school, kids would pull out knives if a fight happened. Um, helicopters would fly over our house every once in a while because of shootings in and around um, the area. So... You, you know, you grow up like that, you, you know, and I went to school with kids that are in jail, manslaughter, other things, drugs, um, you know, and, and my parents were hardworking and conservative and my dad busted his ass to, you know, get my brother and I educated, get us into private schools. By the time we get into high, you know, junior high and high school, um, paid for my college, paid for most of my graduate degree. So I, I grew up seeing that just hard work to make the next generation better. Um, and it's just, you know, um, it's part of it. And, and, and I know a bunch of people who grew up privileged who bust their ass all the time too. Um, and, you know, I, I just, you can tell people who coast and it's okay to coast, depending upon the job, depending upon where you're at in your life, um, and stuff like that. But you know, if uh, um, if if it really needs a level of uh, grit, if it needs a level of somebody willing to do the grind, you got to find people who are willing to do the hard work and not be shy of it. I've had a lot of folks. You know, and I, I, I still mentor recent college grads. In fact, I was a uh, guy that the class I taught at Pepperdine um, is in the Navy. He's getting out in a couple months. I made an offer to all the students. I'll chat with you, anybody, anytime. 
call me. I'll I'll spend time and give you career advice. I've spent four or five hours with him since March. Um, cause he's hungry, he's humble, he's smart, you know, and, uh, and I'm trying to help network him into roles and he's a IT network administrator, not a security person, but he's getting his MBA and he's getting, you know, uh, security certifications and he wants to figure out how to get into cybersecurity. And then he's like, well, how do I, how do I become chief information security officer someday? I'm like, go back to my thing. Hard work speeds talent that doesn't work so hard, luck timing and execution. And you're going to have to make a lot of sacrifices to get there, depending upon how quick you want to get there. And I said, but let me, you know, I, I went and asked him a different question. I said, tell me the life you want to be, you know, he's 25, I'm 54. I'm like, tell me what life you want to live when you're in your early 50s. What, what do you know, married kids, home, uh, vacation home, aging parents that you want to take care of, philanthropic efforts that you want to donate money to, or are you the type that just says, hey, I want to make a decent amount of money. I don't want to want for anything, but I don't have any, you know, anything necessary more than that. And if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't. You just want to do be intellectually stimulated and make a decent amount of money. It's like, if you can tell me what life you want or have an idea of it, I can tell you how long it's going to take you to get there and what net wealth you need to to be there and what sacrifices you might have to do to get there. So for me, I, I look at it from that perspective and I made a lot of sacrifices to drive myself hard. You know, I got promoted every 18 to 24 months at Intel in a 24 year period. I mean, I went from a recent college grad to a vice president in, you know, um, a decade and a half. Um, And it requires a lot of sacrifices. Missing kids' birthdays, anniversaries, you know, um, heck, you know, I'll, I'll just share it. Some of you may have been in the same situation at times. I managed incidents while my parents were both on their deathbed several years apart. Why? Because they were nation state incidents and I had to be in the middle of it while I'm sitting next to them at the hospital a few hours before they die. They, I, you know, I had to do it. I had to do it because of what I wanted to deliver for my family down the road, but I had to also manage, you know, um, stuff at home too. You know, that's where there's a lot of stress in our roles and we end up sometimes in that push and pull of personal life, corporate life. And if the corporate thing is material, you can't not keep your eyes on it or keep your finger on it while you're dealing with sometimes life events at home. It's just unfortunately that, you know, happened to me multiple times. And, you know, so you have that dialogue and you go, you know, doesn't mean you, it might happen that way for somebody, but it, it, uh, it's a decent likelihood if you're choosing the, the path of, of running cybersecurity. Wow. Um, Malcolm, I can tell you that uh, I can't even coast if I wanted to at home. My wife won't let me. I'm the, uh, <laughs> I'm the garbage man. I'm the Mr. Fix-It. But uh, 
I, I, a lot of what you said resonated with me. Uh, I know we've, we've sacrificed, so I've sacrificed a, uh, quite a bit in my role. Um, anyways, I, I don't really care to get into that, but, um, but yeah, it's, it, it's, it's tough. It's tough. And, uh, anyways, yeah, but, but, no, but uh, knowing that other, knowing all of us might face that if you haven't, and some of us have, it's a struggle. Hence, struggle for a shared aspiration. And, you know, again, I'll tell you guys like I tell everybody, if I can help and you're in a struggle, drop me a note, ping me, I'll, I'll find the time. I was lucky enough to have other people in my career at Intel, executives, when I was junior, that I, that created Lyft for me because I would just say, hey, can I pick your brain? Can I get some help? I'm struggling with something and I need somebody to give me perspective. And I still go back to some of them and I haven't worked with them for decades, but they're still available to me just like I am for anybody that I've ever worked with, or I sometimes randomly meet like the guy who's in my Pepperdine class. Uh, definitely need to reach out and and call someone if you do need uh if you do need any sort of uh, assistance or somebody to bounce ideas off of. That's definitely a good thing. Having a network of friends or even colleagues or trusted colleagues or mentors or what have you. It's it's uh it's good because no one should suffer in silence, right? Should, yep. No one should uh struggle in silence. So. There is a, just a pivot and switch gears a bit. I did see David Cass join us. David, welcome. I'll give you a minute to settle in. There was a question in the chat that was posed by uh, Matthew. Uh, can you ask Malcolm if he believes there has been an improvement since 2013 in information sharing between CISOs and organizations, or is this, or is, or if this is still a huge challenge for the industry? Hopefully um, I got that question right. Yeah. I, there's definitely been pockets of tremendous improvement, but there's also pockets of people who just will sit on the side, let everybody else share their information, and then never say a word and just collect data and intelligence and never contribute back to the community. Um, I still see it. I, it drives me nuts. Um, and I hear the excuse from people, well, my general counsel won't allow me to do it. I, you know, I don't know, I'm a risk taker. First time, uh, one of the times I was in front of the board uh, at Intel, again, it was uh, 2009, 2010. Anyways, we we're having a dialogue and threatened intelligence and public part partnerships were, you know, starting to you know emerge then and, you know, the next generation of them and stuff. And I got asked a question from the board and I, you know, um, I was like, yeah, yeah I, I belong to this group and this group and share. And I, you know, play with some of these government agencies from time to time and in different ways. And, and I, I generically answered, uh, answered it. And Paul Odellini was running the company at the time. And he, he was like, you didn't really answer that. And I'm like, and I'm like, ah, oh, crap. And I'm like, okay. It's like, okay, let's, let's be blunt. I said, uh, Norm is the CIO of Qualcomm. Joshua Davis is the CISO for Qualcomm. We all know each other. We all know each other. And I know what's going on in his environment. He knows what's going on in mine. 
And I said, and I know we're market competitors, but I don't really give a crap. Our competitors are the people who are trying to do damage to this industry. And you could heard a pin drop on the board. And, and of course, the, the general counsel and one of the lawyers on the board was like, what, what non-disclosure agreement and you know, whatever do you have in place for these things? And I said, none. They're handshakes. They burn me, I burn them. I was like, and it's trust. I was like, trust is not in the form of a contract. It's because I know the person, I trust the person, they're vulnerable with me and I'm vulnerable with them. That's how I do it. You don't want to know how I do it, don't ask. But that's what I do. And, and then you saw this all uncomfortableness and I'm like, look, I recognize if I screw it up, you'll fire me. And they're all like, yes, we will. I said, great, we're all clear then. I'll do it the way in which I do it. And if I screw it up, you can fire me. All good. That's how we ended the dialogue. There's, but it was a very uncomfortable moment because a lot of people are like, you're, you're, you're sharing what with who, right? Um, but I'm like, look, guys, I will trade in sensitive information, and I still do, in order to protect my organization and protect other parts of critical infrastructures and prints that I have. And in return, they do the same for me. Just some people are more, they'll take, but not give. And I try and do both in at least equal proportions. Yep. I hear you. It was a comment in the, in the, in the chat saying that's powerful. Trust is not a contract. I, I agree with that. I mean, there, there's also Telegram. You can use Telegram. <laughs> but that didn't exist years ago. If you uh, have David... to have a contract, there's no trust. I, you know. You have to have it for some things, but I go, the contract doesn't generate trust. It just generates how you're going to sue each other um, if uh, if the relationship doesn't pan out. Yep, absolutely. Uh, David Cass, are you with us, David Cass? Hey, <coughs> hey why Malcolm. You, uh, hey. Why don't you introduce yourself real quick, David, and say oh, whatever just... disclaimer if you have. Yep. So yeah, exactly. Any any opinion is mine. <laughs> just, just represent that of past or present employers. So uh, I'm I'm currently the uh, global CISO for GSR and also their uh, US CTO. So by the way, Malcolm, if if that 25 year old happens to be looking for a role in enterprise IT, uh, I, I have openings. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, to be honest, I'll, uh, I'll we can have a side note on that. But I've I've plugged them into a, a couple people for just again mentorship. So that way, they might have an opening. It might be in the network team, and then it might lead to the security team. But yeah, I'll uh, I'll connect him to you. Like I said, he's he's a smart guy. No, oh, perfect. And I do owe you a follow up as as well. Yeah, no worries. Been, uh, up to my eyeballs and like money transmitter licenses. So yeah, happy to join you. Always a great conversation. So no questions from from me. Just apologies for being late. I literally just got off a phone call. No worries, and, and 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 again, you know, David, uh, congratulations on your uh, your other new role that was announced, uh, you know, um, uh, the other day or so. Yeah, so, yeah I, I'm starting to think free time is a hobby that I don't have anymore. But <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on, you're not with the Federal Reserve anymore. You've got plenty of free time. <laughs> but no, always a pleasure, man, and I, I definitely appreciate all your insights that that I've caught so far. But you know, and, and no, no questions for me. That's, Thanks. That's all right, Mr. President. 
Congratulations, Mr. <laughs> President. Uh, but did somebody say hiring for a security architect in California for the NFL? Uh, sorry, I, oh, that was a different conversation. Uh, go ahead, Lisa Beth. I know you wanted to say something. So I have a quick question for you, Malcolm. You know, th this evening has been full of um, so many different experiences that you had and um, the wonderful advice that you provided. I'm wondering, you've done so many different things. In your life, what is the best compliment that you've received? Wow. Um, boy, there's a couple of them that come to mind. Some personal, some from a work perspective. Um, from a personal perspective, when um, I was promoted to a vice president at Intel, Intel would do a corporate officers and board dinner. We took over the California Academy of Sciences. There was, you know, a dozen of us that were promoted and, you know, board and executives and stuff like that and our, and our wives. But they, uh, Intel had a, a uh, um, an approach to uh, create a book for all the people that got uh, promoted and had their pictures and your boss wrote something about you and, and stuff like that. And, and you were asked to go find somebody, a colleague, a, a friend, a family member to give um, a quote um, about you. And, and your boss actually wrote the thing. Um, mine, actually, it still sits on our fireplace mantle. Uh, and, and you can probably guess this from all the things I've said. The title of it was, I exude extreme integrity because I had told enough people to F off and some, some things were not going to happen under my watch um over the years that that became how i was labeled when i was made a vice president um and then the quote i'm like trying to figure out who and whatever and one day my my middle son he was uh in uh uh late uh he was in middle school at the time we were standing around and i'm trying to figure it out and i was like hey evan if, if you were to do a um a quote that would describe me what would it be and he pauses for a second and he's like you're a person who does what he says he's going to do. And I'm like, that works. And that, you know, I, that's who I am. Uh, if I say something, I'm going to do it. I, I make a commitment. I try and meet the commitment. Um, that was a big compliment to me that my son recognized that in me. Um, so um, from that perspective, um, that's one. I, from a, from a kind of a work and other industry perspective, to be honest, the biggest compliment that I get is seeing people who've I've worked with or worked for me move on to bigger things and grow into those Z-shaped individuals, have a level of integrity, not afraid to sometimes pick a fight, start a fight, or jump into a fight if they need to in order to make sure the right things get done the right way. Um, and you know bring just a, a genuine sense of, of passion and purpose and then turn around and try and grow the next generation um and spend time with people and and again cultivate that culture of i believe i belong i matter to me that's the biggest compliment for anything i've done in the industry is when i see people that i've spent time with and and who've worked with me for years and i see them taking aspects of things that are important to me and they've implemented them in their own way genuine to themselves to generate impact and 
and protect to enable their companies. Uh, that to me is priceless. That's fantastic. And it really tells me, you know, what matters to you in terms of what you value as your contribution. So thanks for sharing that. Tomas. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Lisbeth. Thanks for asking that question. Very good insight, Michael. Malcolm. Uh, look, it is uh, it is three minutes away until the end of our, our segment this evening. I want to be conscious of time. I don't want to keep anybody longer than they than they have to be. Uh, I, I didn't even realize that we were sort of zipping zipping on by with, with uh, given that the conversation has just been flowing. So thank you, Malcolm, for for that, and thank you for sort of taking the time to spend with us. Uh, just before we, we sort of get to the conclusion, I just want to make one quick announcement. Uh, if you're joining us back next week, uh, please make sure you join us because we have Ashley Court or Ashley Court joining us. Hopefully I got her last name right. Uh, so please come back next week. Again, we do this every Wednesday between 8 p.m. Eastern time and 9.30 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, Mods, any final questions for Malcolm before I kind of get to uh, maybe the last one that I, that I have? Just that it was a pleasure, Malcolm. I honestly, just really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for being so candid. And um, just what a great guest. Thanks again. Oh, thank you. Likewise. Had a blast. Thank you, Malcolm. Thank you, Malcolm. Thanks, Malcolm. Uh, Anil here. Uh, you know, also wanted to convey, you know, I appreciate, you know, being in those, those conversations over lunch or at events uh, and your insights there as well. So definitely keep it rolling. Thank you. Thank you. So Malcolm, I'm going to ask you this question, and and I'm gonna I'm going to uh, steal from our prior guest. So I usually ask the the, the final question is uh, if you had any piece of advice for the younger Malcolm, what it would be. But I, I'll ask <laughs> you, I'll I'll switch it up uh, in honor of Ryan who asked this question, which I thought was fantastic. If you had any piece of advice for the future, Malcolm, what would it be, and why? Uh, it would try and be, you know, stay true to who I am. You know, there's, um, as I told you, if I look at my wall, I have all these things. When you ask that, my, my eyes wandered because I kind of roughly know where all this stuff is. There's a, uh, um, a quote from Edward Everett Hale that, um, I really like, I am only one, but I am still one. I cannot do everything, but can still do something. And because I can not do everything, I will not refuse to do the something that I can do. It, I mean, if you think about it, it's, I'm an action oriented person and we can't solve everything, but you know, it's, it's always make incremental progress every day. Love that. Love that. That incremental progress you'd be surprised once you add it all up and see how far you've gone or, you've, or how far you've come. So I love that. Um, so Malcolm, look, uh, really, really thank you for uh, taking the time to spend with us and share your insights. Um, again, if you just joined us, you missed a good session, but you can listen to the playback. It should be available in a few minutes. Uh, on behalf of, of the Fireside Chat Group, I want to thank you, Malcolm. I'll leave the final words for you to bring us home and close it out. I, you know, I, uh, again, thank you for the time. Thank you for allowing me to uh, express my opinions. And uh, I'll leave you with one final quote. 
Um, it was from T. Dewar, the uh, Dewar Distillery, the guy who created it. Mines are like parachutes. They work best when open. Keep an open mind. It, uh, it, will, it will help us all. Couldn't agree more. And if you see us flashing our microphones, that's us applauding, by the way. Uh, <laughs> oh, Ange, Ange is, oh, Ange, you, all right, go ahead, Ange. Did she raise her hand? Ange, you coming up? No, okay. All right, we're, we're, we're concluding. Ange, you got five, four, three, two, one. All right, Ange is not coming up. All right, sounds good. Look, we'll, we'll close on that. Uh, thank you, Malcolm. Thanks, everybody, for uh, for tuning in. We'll see you all and hear you all next week. Have a good rest of your week, everybody. And if you need to talk to somebody, feel free to give us a call. And Malcolm, I heard him say he's open for a conversation. So uh, ping Malcolm. But if you uh, want to connect with him, you can see his LinkedIn there. And please stay tuned to what Malcolm's got going on with his new company. It's worth, uh, worth keeping an eye on for, for those security practitioners and professionals in the room. So I'll talk to you all soon. Cheers. Bye, everybody. Thanks. Bye, everyone.